Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started uh, tonight, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to stay the word, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we have your word to go to because it is the absolute truth. It is the book, it is the revelation that is the uh, basis for understanding everything in your creation. It provides the framework for understanding everything in creation so that uh, everything that we learn through uh, our senses or through other means Uh, ultimately sits under the judgment of your word. Father, we pray that as we approach your word, that we'll have an attitude of submission, subordination to what you have to teach us, that we may come to understand these things more fully, more completely, and that God the Holy Spirit would uh, help us to understand the doctrines we study this evening in in a, a more clear manner. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's Tuesday night after a trip to Kiev, so I usually give a little summary, a little report of what I did, and uh, something of a little slideshow, but because of some problems with the, uh, with the computer, I'm not going to uh, go through any slides tonight because that's uh, not available. But if you're interested in looking at some pictures and some video that I took, then go to the... Uh, Dean Bible website, if you go to the media downloads and then it'll open up and there's uh, audio files and then documents and a few things down at the bottom, it says pictures. You go in there and there's a file for Kiev 2008 and there are several videos that I took with my digital camera in Jatomer, which will kind of give you a little bit of a flavor of what was going on in that three and a half hour service. And then some other still pictures down near the bottom of the list. You can kind of tell which ones are the are just the pictures, the photographs, because they're much smaller. And there's a says the file size off on the right. But I went out there to uh, this year as usual to teach at the uh, at the school that Jim started about six or seven years ago. And one of the reasons Jim started the training school was because even though there was a seminary there and still is a seminary there called Kiev Theological Seminary, they have a broad spectrum of, of theology, and it just got to a point where he couldn't, if somebody came to him for a recommendation uh, that they wanted some more training, he found he couldn't really recommend that seminary, even though it is pastored by a graduate of Dallas Seminary. Um, the theology there is, I mean, it's pretty strange in places. So Jim decided that if you're going to do it, you got to do it yourself. So he started the Word of God Bible College. It's a two-year curriculum. He runs it in modules. He did, at the time, Mark Musser was over there, and he, he and Mark split up about a third of the courses, and then the rest of the courses were to be taught by pastors who would come over from the U.S. At, for two weeks at a time and just teach a, an intensive module so that typical schedule, and he just changed it last year. It used to be Monday through Friday, but now they have Monday off, and we go from 9 in the morning until 2.30 in the afternoon with a half-hour break for lunch and go Tuesday through Friday. And then uh, I also teach Sunday morning, Sunday night, uh, Wednesday night. This year, the middle weekend, I went to Jatomer to teach at the church there, taught on Friday night and on and on Sunday morning. 
And this is a very interesting church. The building's interesting. It was originally built as a Lutheran church in the 1890s. And then uh, the Soviets turned it into a barn and then an athletic center. And then uh, it's back to a church. So it's a it's the largest church in Jatomer, and Eager's got a real um, solid ministry at that church. And so this is my second time there, and it's really interesting to go somewhere and to teach at church. This year I didn't have to wear my overcoat in the pulpit like I did the last time because it was a little warmer outside. But it always makes you feel kind of odd when everybody in the congregation has on their their fur coats and their fur hats and their heavy coats and their heavy hats, and it's actually you can sometimes you can almost see your breath. So for those of you who think it gets a little cool in here sometimes, it doesn't. <laughs> it gets cold over there. So that's that's a that's a good ministry. But the primary reason to go is to teach the students, and it's always exciting to hear how the past students have gone out to different cities, uh, villages in Ukraine, and they're developing different ministries. And so this is, like I said, this is about the sixth year that Jim has been doing this, and so there have been a number of number of graduates. This year he has uh, 10 students. It always sounds like it's a small number, but uh, it's, it's really not. He usually has 12 to 14, two dropped out right before the semester started, so he only had 10 this year. But it's uh, uh, <clears throat> they're they're good. They're smart. One of the positive testimonies this year is that the father of two of the students that uh, were there the last couple of years has been a pastor for probably 20 years, and he was learning so much from his two sons that he decided he needed to go. So that that's I think is a great testimony for what uh, Jim is doing there. He's also been helped by Titus Kennedy. Titus has a THM, I'm not sure from where, some school up in Canada, I think. He did his undergraduate at Biola. His father is Todd Kennedy, who's the pastor of Spokane Bible Church. And uh, Todd is a pastor at a doctoral church. He's also on the board for Chafer Seminary. And Titus has been teaching Greek and Hebrew there the last two years. And we need to pray for a new language instructor because Titus is leaving at the end of this semester to go to either UCLA, University of Chicago, or Harvard to work on his Ph.D. in archaeology. And he was there the first week I was there, and then uh, this last week he went to Israel to work on a sifting project where they're taking the, where the dirt that the Arabs have illegally excavated from the interior of the Temple Mount where they're building a large uh, underground mosque has just been, it hasn't been done legally at all and hasn't been under the supervision of an archaeologist and they've just taken all this dirt out and they dump it down in a dump in the Kidron Valley. The next day the Israeli archaeologists come in and load it up on trucks and take it off to a site and they have teams of volunteers who sift through it. And Titus sent an email out yesterday and they they found a number of coins and a number of other artifacts just in the week that he was there. So it's... uh, um, that's an interesting little project, but he was down there. So it's, you know, Jim's had good people come in, good teachers, and you just need to, to continue to pray that they'll get a new, a new language teacher. That's the hardest thing to find is a good, competent Greek and Hebrew teacher because they really have to have not only knowledge of the language, but the ability to teach it through a translator. And then to, um, and then to teach a good exegetical methodology, and you just can't learn exegetical methodology from watch, from listening to somebody teach any more than you can uh, learn how to run uh, patterns for a quarterback by watching football games. You know, you just you have to have a coach, somebody to teach you, and so that's that's a real real prayer need there. All right, let's go to our passage in 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8. If I sound a little disjointed, my body, my body's here, but my mind is at, it's like 4.15 in Ukraine. and So if I zone out in the middle of the hour, you'll know why. 
First Kings chapter 8 takes our attention on the dedication of the temple. Before I left, we had a le- in our lesson, I traced the, uh, the movements of the ark from, the, from its original construction and the dedication of the tabernacle in 1446 B.C. through the uh, wilderness wanderings, through the conquest, the time it spent at Shiloh, the, when it was lost at the Battle of Aphek to the Philistines, came back, Kiriath-Jerim, and then later uh, when David moved it to Jerusalem. And so we went through the first uh, 11 verses as they were finally bringing the ark up from the city of David from Zion, which is just below the Temple Mount, to the temple itself. And as they bring it into the temple, we read in verse 10, it came to pass when the priest came out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And the emphasis there is on the indwelling presence of God. This is usually referred to as the Shekinah glory. And as the cloud comes, settles down, it is God taking up, showing that he is taking up residence in the Holy of Holies. Now, the interesting thing is, how can an omnipresent God, an infinite God, isolate himself into one place? And this is a question that Solomon himself will raise in his prayer of dedication, so we'll wait to look at that uh, when we get there in the next uh, couple of verses. But this is what happens is that the infinite God is able to somehow particularize or localize himself in a particular place, even though he is infinite and even though he is uh, omnipresent. He doesn't lose that, but he somehow is able to have a particular uh, location. And so as the cloud settles on the, on the tabernacle, Solomon speaks and says, The Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. And this is a special word in the Greek. It's arafel, which refers to a thick cloud, a enshrouded cloud, thick darkness. It's, it's, they couldn't see their hand in front of the face. The priest couldn't. And so it's a, it's a word that's used sometimes to refer to a stormy sea. And it is typically a word used in passages that picture the end time judgments, God coming in thick clouds of, of judgment, especially during the time of the day of the Lord. And there are various passages that uh, reference that. Jeremiah 13:16, Ezekiel 34:12, Joel 2:2, 2, 2, Zephaniah 1:15. So it is a indication of the presence of God and of His approval of the Solomonic Temple, which is referred to uh, as the first temple. We come to verse 13. Solomon says, I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell forever. And as we look at this, there are some interesting things that go on in this passage. The first is the construction at the beginning where he says, I have surely built. This is the... Uh, Hebrew word bana, which is the word that is used of the creation of the woman in Genesis 1-2. But more importantly, this is an interesting grammatical construction because you have the repetition of the verb. You have a cal infinitive construct plus a cal perfect. Now this, I always try to make this point because many of you have heard an erroneous interpretation of this syntax. It doesn't mean the idea of of doing something and then doing it. For example, this is the same construction you have in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, that if you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will certainly, surely die. That's the idea there. It is not dying, you will die. And there were people who have translated it that way. And that, I mean, if you take that, if you were to translate this grammar the same way, it would say, building I have built. And that just doesn't make sense. It's poor grammar and doesn't mean anything. It is, the repetition of the verb in the Hebrew is designed to intensify the meaning that this is something that, is, uh, that has definitely, purposefully been accomplished. 
And so Solomon says, I have surely or I have, I have certainly built you an exalted house. The word for exalted is the Hebrew word zebul, meaning that which is magnificent or lofty. It is an exalted dwelling, and it is... We just, you know, I showed you some pictures the last time, artist reconstruction, but I just don't think that, that artists capture the the temple and how it looked because this was the most impressive structure. It was outside and inside. It's covered in gold. When the sun is coming up from the east and hits the entry to the temple, it just it, the reflection of the sun off of that gold was so brilliant that anyone coming into Jerusalem and seeing that was just overwhelmed. The, the, the descriptions in the scriptures, this is the most beautiful thing, the most attractive building that anyone has ever seen. It's, the, the, it's not just hyperbole or exaggeration. It was a, uh, just a marvel in the ancient world, and this is where God establishes his dwelling. So Solomon says, I have built you an exalted, a magnificent uh, <clears throat> habitation. It's a word that is used uh, three times in the, uh, in the scriptures to describe the dwelling place uh, of, of God. Uh, one of those places is also in Isaiah chapter 63, verse 15. Now, the other word that's of interest in this passage is the word to dwell. This is from the Hebrew word shakan, which means to settle, Sometimes it means to occupy the places it means to lie down or set in place, but it has a primary meaning of dwelling. And this becomes the basis for the later rabbinic term Shekinah. We talk about the Shekinah glory, and really what we're saying is it's the dwelling glory. It's the glory of the dwelling of God. And this word comes over etymologically into Greek eskene, and it's used in John chapter 1 where John writes that um, um, the word became flesh and dwelt, skene, tabernacled, dwelt among us. <clears throat> and that word goes into other languages uh, as, as various cognates of the Hebrew uh, shakan. So this has the idea of dwelling. This is where that term comes from. This is where God is going to uh, take up his dwelling. So Solomon uh, describes what has happened here as the Lord, as the cloud settles on the, on the temple, that God is dwelling in, <clears throat> taking up his dwelling in the, in the temple. And he will stay there until approximately uh, 598 uh, BC, which is before the the uh, Chaldeans under Nebuchadnezzar come in to take them uh, into captivity and God will depart from the uh, temple and Ezekiel will see this in a vision where the glory goes out to the entryway of the gate and then to the east gate and then across the uh, Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives and then ascend to heaven which is the same place from which Jesus ascended uh, to heaven after the uh, resurrection. Verse 14, we come into a section of about eight verses where Solomon turns around and uh, articulates a blessing upon the people. This is an introduction to what is an extremely formal type of ceremony. They have, uh, according to the verses back in... um, uh, verses 1 through 4, there is, there, all of the elders of Israel have gathered here. He has waited until the uh, feast in the seventh month, which is the Feast of Dedication, and he is dedicating the temple at that particular time. So there are going to be uh, numerous, thousands of animals sacrificed. There, The uh, orchestra choirs are all gathered. The people have been are singing uh, praises, recitation of scripture. It is an enormous event with a tremendous amount of, of, uh, of ceremony. And it is right because this is for the dedication of the temple and the coming of the Lord. So as he turns to the congregation, verse 14 is simply a summary of what he is going to 
uh, say in the next seven verses. We read in verse 14, Then the king turned around and blessed the whole assembly of Israel, while all the assembly of Israel was standing. And then just read ahead for a minute with me, verse 15, And he said, Blessed be the Lord. So when it says he blessed the people, then the next verse is going to tell us how he goes about doing that. It's been very common and I hear all kinds of people now saying, well, you know, bless you or uh, have a blessed day. And this word blessing has become trite and trivial now because people are overusing it and most people don't have any idea uh, what the word actually means. And if we look at the context here, what it it's used a couple of different a uh, couple of different ways. He turns around and blesses the assembly. Well, what exactly does that mean? And the word is barach. That's the root word. It's here. It's in the PL imperfect, and the PL is an intensified stem, and it has the idea of blessing, which can mean praise. It can mean thanksgiving. It can mean uh, to kneel or to salute or greet. And in the context here, this is when Solomon is first addressing the assembly of the elders and the people, and this is his opening salutation. So here the word bless has more of the meaning of his initial greeting of the people. And in that, he is going to focus their attention on God and what God has done in the history of Israel and what God has provided for them. The whole focus of this, this section from the uh, verse 14 down through uh, the end of the chapter in uh, verse 66 is one of the great chapters in the Bible that talk about prayer, public prayer. The prayer is actually a a claiming of a promise. So it helps us understand what it means to claim a promise or to pray through promises that God has given us in His Word. And it is a, and also a tremendous example of one form of corporate worship. So in that sense, it helps complement what we're studying in the worship series in uh, Revelation on Sunday morning. So he turns around And he blesses or greets the whole assembly of Israel and note their posture while the assembly of Israel is standing. Now, we don't do a whole lot of standing here other than when we sing uh, hymns because it's better for a posture when you're singing if you stand up. But in many churches, and I've been to some in the States and I've been to some for the Ukrainian Baptist Church where I was last, last weekend, when you pray, everybody stands up. Some churches, if you read the scripture, everybody stands up. If I start reciting the verses I recite before Bible class, everybody stands up. So we don't do that a lot in our the way we conduct ourselves, and there's no absolute one way or the other. But in the scriptures, you often see this with the Jews, is that when there are prayers given, they stand up. When there's the reading of Scripture, for example, in uh, Nehemiah, and I think it's about chapter 9, when they call all the people together and begin to read the law to them, and you have the, the, the priest standing up in the front, Ezra, reading the law, and then you have other priests, because you've got tens of thousands of people there. You have others in the crowd who are repeating that, so that it can be heard throughout the entire crowd. And everybody stands there from about 9 o'clock in the morning until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. See, you have it so easy. Not only is it really not cold in here, and you think it is, but you have a nice, soft chair to sit in, and, and I don't make you stand up for even an hour while I teach. You get to sit there, so there's nothing to complain about. So the whole assembly of Israel stands through this entire prayer of um, <clears throat> prayer of dedication. Verse 15, we see what the greeting consists of. 
He begins with another form of the word Barak. This time it's in the cow passive, which means that God is the, actually the recipient of the blessing. And here the word bless has the uh, nuance of praise. And so praise or thankfulness. And so here when he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, when we look at what he says in terms of why he is blessed, it is a rehearsal of what God has done in the history of Israel and how God has provided graciously for Israel. And so what follows is a statement of praise focusing on God. It is, it's not a psalm, but it has the same ideas of what would be what is called a declarative, um, or excuse me, a descriptive praise psalm where it describes what God has done in the past and why he is worthy uh, to be honored and to be praised. So it begins, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And there's a couple of things that you should, uh, that we should note here as he begins. And the first is the way he refers to God. He refers to him as Yahweh Elohim in the Hebrew. The Yahweh is the uh, four-letter tetragrammaton YHWH that is the name of God that is associated with his uh, entering into the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, in your English Bibles, the uh, tetragrammaton is normally indicated by uppercase Lord or sometimes uh, if Lord is in lo- uh, uh, just regular uh, first letter cap- initial capital and then lowercase O-R-D, then God would be in, uh, in, in up- uppercase. So either way, that indicates when the word for Lord or God is in uppercase, all uppercase, that indicates that it's Yahweh in the original. So he, the word, the name Yahweh is associated with the Exodus and it is associated with the giving of the Mosaic Covenant. And this is important because what the, the foundation for everything um, that Solomon says is the Exodus event and God's redemption and the Mosaic Covenant, and then secondly, the Davidic Covenant. If you don't understand the Mosaic Covenant and the Davidic Covenant, you don't understand why he's saying what he's saying, because he has thought through these two covenants, specifically the blessing and the cursing sections, uh, the divine discipline sections of the Mosaic Covenant, and that forms the core of his prayer of dedication. And then in the initial part, the introduction that we have here and in verses 22 down to 30, that focuses more on the Davidic covenant. So it shows how these promises that God has uh, distilled into these two covenants have been the focal point of Solomon, and they have really... um, uh, taken root in his soul, and the, the statements that he is making, the prayers that he is uttering, are an outgrowth of his meditation on God's promises. And the word meditate means to uh, contemplate, to think about something. It's not this Eastern uh, mystical idea that you vacate the mind and focus on nothing. It is the idea that you take time to concentrate, study, think about what God has said, who he said it to, all the conditions related to it, and how it relates to your own life. So it just shows how how the Word of God has infiltrated the soul and the thinking of Solomon at this stage in, uh, in his life. So he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, and this is foreshadowing of the focal point of this, and as one of the principles I'll be developing in the worship series on Sunday morning is what makes worship worship is that it is God-centered. It is theocentric. It is not about what's happening in me, how I feel about God, uh, how I've been moved by uh, various so-called religious events or songs or anything else. It is about what God, who God is and what he has done in history. There's objective um, uh, 
information here, objective actions of God, not just uh, this sort of superficial, trivial, uh, feel-good kind of stuff which is defined as, as worship today. So, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And the focal point there, again, is God's covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the Davidic covenant. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who spoke with his mouth to my father David. So here he is going to take us right to the uh, Davidic, uh, the Davidic covenant. And this phrase, spoke with his mouth, indicates how important David was to God. Only one other time do you have this kind of verbiage of God speaking mouth to mouth with someone, and that is in Numbers 12.8. In, with reference to Moses, where God said, With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly and not in dark sayings, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? So there is the context, and verse 7 distinguishes the way God has spoken to other prophets through dreams and visions, but with Moses he spoke mouth to mouth. So when we come to uh, look at First Kings 8.15, when Solomon says that uh, God spoke with his mouth to my father David, that is emphasizing uh, direct verbal revelation, that God is speaking audibly with David. If David had had a little MP3 recorder, he could have recorded the sound of God. It was an objective historical reality. It wasn't just some voice David heard inside of his head because then he wouldn't really know, well, did I just have a bad dream because uh, I ate the wrong thing for dinner or what? So, blessed be the Lord God of Israel who spoke with his mouth to my father David and with his hand has fulfilled it. Now, this is an anthropomorphic idiom in Hebrew. His, the hand of God is a, an idiom for the power of God. It is not emphasizing God's literal hand, but that hand is, is how we do things, how we accomplish things. And so it is a, a, an idiom to, for, for the omnipotence, the power of God, the strength of God. These are key words that we find in a lot of uh, parallel type passages. And so we see the example of the power of God that he goes to is when he brings uh, the, the Jews out of out of Egypt, verse uh, 16, since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt. So the, he, Solomon is rehearsing what God, uh, what God said to David. God, in making the covenant with David, says, uh, says to David, since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, which is a picture of the regeneration, the rebirth, the redemption, the salvation of the nation from slavery in Egypt. What's important to understand is when you go through the Scripture from Genesis through um, through the rest of the Pentateuch and then you get into uh, the <clears throat> historical books and you get into the major prophets and then into the New Testament, you discover that there are about eight or nine key events and people that are constantly referred to. And that the whole theology of the Bible hangs on these people and these events. Uh, one of those is, of course, Adam and the fall in the garden. Another is the flood. Another is the call of Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant. Another is the Exodus event. This is how uh, Charlie Clough came up with his idea for the framework, is that it is these key historical events that are referred to again and again and again throughout the Scripture, and God has revealed himself in certain doctrines historically within the framework of each of these events. And so as we understand how uh, <clears throat> these doctrines in their histor original historical context, the first time God reveals them, and we trace that through the Scripture, then it gives us a, a, a comprehensive view of what God is doing in, in, in Scripture. And we're able to take the Scripture as a consistent whole. 
And most people, you literally don't do that. I mean, they just open the Bible and say, okay, I'm going to preach on this this week, and they turn over here, and I'm going to do this topic next week. And whatever they think people need to hear, uh, they just jump to in these various topical type uh, messages rather than teaching through the Bible uh, verse by verse through whole books of the Bible so that we get a consistent, uh, totally integrated cons- view of, of how God thinks and what he has said about his, his creation. So this is just an example of that, that as God is giving his covenant to David, the f- thing that he goes to, f- first of all, is the Exodus event, uh, which is the birth or rebirth of the nation. They're initially born, you would, might say, with Abraham, and then there is this rebirth when they are brought out of, out of slavery in Egypt. So God says to David, since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt. Now, we're going to get to something important in the next two or three weeks, and so until then, I'm going to do, do, have a little pedagogical repetition, just like we did with land, seed, and blessing. Who are my people? In context, I don't hear you, Israel. Israel. Okay, just want to make well, well, you'll you'll understand why in about three weeks. Israel, the my is first person sing, uh, singular. God is speaking, so He's talking about His people, and it's Israel. He's not talking about anybody else, and He is referring to the fact that He brought His people, Israel, out of Egypt. He says, "I have chosen no city." from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. And then I have the word gap there. I'll tell you what that means in just a minute. But I chose David to be over, uh, over my people Israel. So he is re- he, God is stating to David that at the very beginning, I didn't pick a city, I didn't pick a tribe uh, for, for my house, but what I did do is I chose David to be the king over Israel, and that's a reference to the uh, to the Davidic covenant. Now, the the reason I put gap in there is because we are going to see more and more of these parallel passages between First Kings and Second Chronicles, and First Kings chapter eight is almost identical. To set to first, excuse me. I think I said I misspoke and said Second Chronicles a minute ago. I did. I typed it wrong. I did type it wrong. I'm jet lagged. First Kings eight and Second Chronicles six are parallel, but there are little differences, and that has to do with the purpose of the writer. the The writer of Chronicles is writing after the exile to sort of rebuild the nation's confidence in the Davidic promises so that the focus in Chronicles is only on the southern kingdom and what God is doing through the house of David. Whereas in Kings, the focus is a little more on the northern kingdom, but it's dealing with the reason that why there's a split between the north and the south and why God is bringing about the judgment of the Assyrian captivity and then the Babylonian captivity. Now, the reason I put the word gap... Did you all see that? Light went out. Okay. I just saw something dim and wanted to make sure I wasn't hallucinating. Okay. There's a gap there because the Chronicles passage says more. Now, how do we handle things like this? I mean, you run into this same kind of problem sometimes in the Gospels. Is in Second Chronicles 6, 5, and 6, we read this almost identical statement, but it adds what I have underlined up there. Since the day that I brought my people out of the land of Egypt, I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. And Chronicles adds, Nor did I choose any man to be a ruler over my people Israel, Yet I have chosen Jerusalem that my name may be there. Now what we have is the Chronicles statement probably gives us a fuller statement of what Solomon said. The king's writer leaves some of this out because it doesn't fit his purpose, whereas the the writer of Chronicles wants to get it in there because it focuses on Jerusalem, which is in 
in the southern kingdom, and his focus is on emphasizing the house of David. So the writer of Chronicles adds it not because he's just making it up, but because Solomon probably said more than what is recorded in either First uh, Kings 8 or Second Chronicles 6. And the writer of Scripture, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is giving us an edited version, not a summary. He is giving us word for word what was said, but he's not necessarily giving us every word that was said. And so in the Chronicles passage, he gives us a little fuller rendition of, of what uh, Solomon said than, is, than in the King's, uh, King's passage. So what we see here is uh, God speaking to David, since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I, haven't, I didn't choose a city, I didn't choose anybody, but then I chose David to be over my people Israel. Then Solomon is speaking in verse 17. He says, Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a temple for the name of the Lord uh, God of Israel. Uh, Solomon says, It was in the heart of my father David to build a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, Whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Now the first thing we have to understand is the meaning of the word heart. And the meaning of the word heart is really talking about the center of a person's being, the center of their soul, the core of their soul. We use it that way a lot. When we use the word heart, idiomatically, we don't use it to refer to necessarily the, the, the pump that is pumping in the middle of our body. We're talking about something that's at the core of the heart of a matter. Or we go to the store and you buy something and put in a salad. It's called hearts of palms. This comes from the center of something. So it's the word heart is focusing on this, this idiom. That's how it's used most of the time in Scripture. In a few places, it has more of an emotional sense to it because it, the, the word heart is almost what we would use as a synonym for the whole makeup of the soul. But in most places, the word heart has to do with the core thinking in a person's soul. So it's a thought uh, thought word. So the Lord is saying, it, uh, so Solomon is saying, now it was in the thinking of my father, it was what he wanted to do, his, it involves his volition, his desire, that he wanted to build a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord prevented that. Whereas it was, But he recognized it. And we see an important principle here is that God recognizes at many times our desire to do certain things, but in his sovereignty, he doesn't allow us circumstantially to be able to do it. But I believe that because that's our desire, that's our motive, under the filling of the Holy Spirit, God recognizes this and it will probably be uh, a part of the gold, uh, silver, and precious stones that we have in the judgment seat of Christ because God honors and recognizes that that's what we want to do, but he's the one who's preventing us from being able uh, to perhaps do something that, that we might want to do, and that's exactly what we see with David. He says, you did well that it was in your heart. He is praising David because David wanted to do something that was very honorable and was the right thing to do, but God is the one who stopped him from doing it. So David is going to get uh, some recognition for his right motivation and his right desire. But God blocked it. Verse 19 says, Nevertheless, you shall not build the temple, but your son who will come from your body, he shall build the temple for my name. So this goes back to the, uh, to the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel Chapter 7 in 1 Chronicles chapter 17 deals with this where God specifically promised David, and we've gone through this in a lot of detail in the past, so I'm just going to hit the high points here, that God promised David that it would be his direct descendant, and later he told David that he was referring to Solomon long before the Adonijah rebellion, uh, that it would be Solomon, and that Solomon was the one who would build the temple for his name. So what Solomon is doing here in this introduction is he's focusing the attention of the people 
on the past act of God in delivering them from Egypt and on and primarily on the Davidic covenant and the promise of God, a specific promise of God to David that his son would build a temple. Now, the reason I'm emphasizing this is the structure and the basis for this whole prayer is that that Solomon is taking these promises that God made to David and he's claiming them before God. So it's a picture of the faith rest drill. And it's very important to understand a couple of principles related to the promises of God. First point is a promise is something that is made with a view to fulfilling it. It is not something that is said that may or may not be fulfilled or something that is said that is easily broken. A promise is made in order to be fulfilled. A second point, a promise is a guarantee, but the guarantee is only as good as the, char- as the character of the person who is making the promise. So if somebody is making a promise and they don't have any integrity, then that promise is no good. But if somebody has integrity and they are honest, then you can count on them fulfilling their obligation uh, in just about any circumstance. And the third point we need to understand about promises is that promises are made to different groups of people or different individuals. And it's very important to identify who a promise is made to. If you make a promise to one person, then somebody else doesn't have the right to come along and say, well, you need to fulfill that promise to me. And, of course, the most obvious distinction here is that if God has made a promise to Israel, then the church can't come along and claim that promise for herself. And so we have to be careful when we handle certain Old Testament promises because they're not given to the church and there's not even a crossover application to the church. And in some cases, we even have to be careful in the Gospels when Jesus makes promises to the disciples. And sometimes it's difficult to tell whether the promise is just for the disciples or whether he is speaking to the church through the disciples. So when we look at promises, we have to recognize that some promises are made to all mankind. For example, the Noahic Covenant includes a promise that God will never again destroy the earth by water. But he will destroy it again by fire. It's not, and that's a promise that's for everybody on the earth, believer, unbeliever, Jew or Gentile. It is a universal promise for every human being. There are other promises that are to specific individuals. Even within the Abrahamic covenant, there are promises to Abraham that don't extend beyond Abraham. God says, I will make your name great. That is not to be applied to all of his descendants. That is that Abraham's name will be made made great. And God said, I will give you the land. He's not just saying, I'm going to give your descendants the land, but I'm going to give you the land. Well, since Abraham never owned the land, Jesus is going to use that as an argument for resurrection, that Abraham's going to have to be raised from the dead so that God can fulfill his promise to him. So that becomes a very sophisticated argument uh, for resurrection. So promises are made to all mankind, promises are made to uh, individuals, promises are made, for example, to Abraham and all his descendants. Romans chapter 9, uh, verse 4 says that the covenants and the promises belong to Israel. So that there are certain promises that are specifically directed only to the descendants, Abraham and his descendants, uh, uh, Israel. You have various groups that are addressed at different times. Gentiles, nations, promises of judgment to different uh, nations, Edom, Babylon, Egypt, uh, Philistia, Tyre. These are promises of judgment. You have promises to the church. You have promises to the disciples. You have promises to um, Old Testament believers only. You have promises to church age believers only. You have promises to tribulation believers only. So you have to make sure that when you're looking at a promise that you're not claiming a guarantee that belongs to somebody else, another member of of um, uh, of the uh, God's overall 
family or kingdom, which includes different peoples. You have Israel, you have the church, and so we have to make those distinctions. Now, when we come to the Davidic covenant, God promised an eternal house, an eternal throne, and an eternal kingdom. And he promised that this would go through Solomon initially, but as we'll see, because Solomon was disobedient, the seed line is going to go actually through his brother Nathan. So, verse 20, Solomon says, So the Lord has fulfilled the word which he spoke. He has He promised one thing, and that's exactly what he did. And by the way, this is a great example of literal interpretation because God promised something, and if you interpret the promise literally, that's how God fulfilled it. So that's one way we know that you don't come along and interpret these promises through some sort of allegorical, mystical, or some other kind of of interpretive system. The Lord has fulfilled his word which he spoke And I have filled the position of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. Now, an interesting thing that we see here is the word for promise is simply the Hebrew word davar, which is the word for to speak. Uh, The noun form is just means a word or a thing or a matter. But in certain contexts, in contexts like this, where it talks about something that God spoke and you have the speaking of a statement, the utterance of a statement, and then a fulfillment, it indicates a promise. And this is important for understanding the whole idea of claiming God's promises and what it means to mix faith with promise with promises. So Solomon says the Lord promised one thing and this is exactly what happened. Verse twenty one there I have made a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord a reminder, of course, of the entire Mosaic Covenant, uh, which he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. So the backdrop for understanding what happens in the next and the rest of the chapter has to do with these understanding the two covenants, the Mosaic Covenant and the uh, Abrahamic Covenant. And then in verse 22, Solomon is stands before the people... And in verse 22 we read, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands toward heaven. And at this point, there is another verse added in Chronicles that was left out here that just fills in the setting a little bit. And we see this in 1 Chronicles 6.13. Now Solomon had made a bronze platform that's five cubits long, five cubits wide and three cubits high, and had set it in the midst of the court, and he stood on it, so he's above the assembly, and he knelt on his knees in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. So what is said in Chronicles doesn't in any way contradict what's in First Kings, but it fills in a little more detail. Now, there's a lot of debate today in some of the scholarly literature on just exactly how long the cubit was because the cubit was the length from a man's elbow to the tip of his fingers. And so my cubit is going to be quite a bit different from uh, the cubit of somebody who's, let's say, five foot four. And so there really weren't any standardized cubits. And to make things more complicated, you had a royal cubit and then you had a uh, common cubit. The Egyptians had a cubit that was longer than the, uh, than the Babylonians and the Assyrians. So we're just, we're, nothing uh, technical is dependent upon this. So the average was around 18 inches. Sometimes it could be a little shorter, sometimes a little longer. So this platform is about uh, 7.5 feet by 7.5 feet, and it is about four and a half feet high. So it's just enough to, for, for Solomon, just a, a nice platform, which even when he kneels, he will still be uh, elevated enough so that the people, uh, the people can see him. And he kneels and spreads out his hands towards heaven. Now, that is not the kind of posture that most of us are used to. In fact, I would imagine that if I came up here on a Sunday morning and decided to crawl up on top of the pulpit on my knees and 
raise my hands in prayer towards God that you might think that I had lost it. But there are a variety of different postures assumed by different people at different times in the Scriptures for prayer. Sometimes they stand open-eyed, raising their head toward heaven with their arms outstretched. Other times they're bowing before God. Other times uh, they are sitting. Other times they are standing. So there is no one prescriptive uh, format for praying. We have a tendency in uh, Western culture to, and especially in our ecclesiastical tradition, to only assume one position in prayer. But there's nothing wrong with assuming other positions. In some cultures, have a variety just because they're they're more expressive. Europeans tend to be a little less expressive emotionally than some uh, Mediterranean cultures. So we have a tendency to think that when they get very exuberant that we're a little uncomfortable. But that's that's nothing that is clear or stated uh, stated in Scripture. The key verse in this next section is in verse 23. And Solomon says, as he addresses God in prayer, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above on earth below like you who keep your covenant and loving kindness with your servants who walk before you with all your hearts. That is the core of his prayer. And there's three elements here. The first element is that uh, he is addressing the Lord God of Israel, and this reminds us that this is the God who entered into a covenant with Israel, as I've covered already. Second thing that he indicates is the uniqueness of God. There is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you. Now, as you read this, you think, well, that's, that's a good statement. That's an important statement. It emphasizes the fact that, that God is unique. There is no other God among all the pagans like God. What's interesting is if you take the key words here and you trace them, this phrase is almost always used and is restricted in its usage to Davidic covenant passages. It's used in a couple of other passages, but it's used in 1 Samuel 7, it's used in 1 Chronicles 17, it's used in Psalm 89, which is a meditation on the Davidic covenant. So even in this uh, Sentence: we see how saturated Solomon's soul is with the language of the Davidic covenant in those particular passages. So it's it, the, the phrase, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you, is a passage that just drips with Davidic covenant nuance. And the third thing it's, he states is that you keep your covenant and loving kindness with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. And there are two ideas here uh, that are parallel, keeping your covenant and loving kindness. And the word for loving kindness, as we'll see, is the Hebrew word hesed, which has to do with loyal or faithful love. And it's sometimes referred to as God's covenant love because it's grounded in this legal, uh, legal contract. So we start off looking at this phrase, there's no God in heaven above or on earth below like you, and we'll come back and next week and start going through the key ideas here because these three ideas that I have emphasized here set the themes that go all the way through Solomon's prayer of dedication and help form, and form the backdrop of the petition in his prayer. And the petition in his prayer is the application or the claiming of the promise. Because he's going to articulate what God promised, he restates to God that he is a faithful, loyal God, always faithful to his covenant. And therefore, God, because you're faithful to your covenant, in your covenant you said you would do X, Y, and Z, and now I'm calling upon you to do X, Y, and Z. And that becomes a pattern for how we should pray. Not just extemporaneous prayer, Lord, help me with this, or thank you for this, but, but thinking through specific promises of God and the rationales embedded in those promises. And then we come back and we almost present a, a legal case to God that because you are, your character is this way, and because you have said this in 
Psalms and you said this in the Gospels and you said this in Ephesians. Now I am asking you to fulfill this petition on the basis of what you have said in the Scriptures. That's claiming a promise, and that is praying through a promise. So we'll see the examples of this when we come back uh, next Tuesday night. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at uh, what Solomon is doing in this dedication, this prayer, how he is, his, his prayer, his language just reveals how his soul is saturated with your word. And that this is a great example to us that if uh, we are to be more effective, more consistent in our prayer lives, then we should be emulating this kind of uh, soul action as uh, just as Solomon has concentrated and meditated upon uh, the promises that are embedded in your word. We pray that you would challenge us with the things that we study, that our spiritual life would be uh, would, would strengthen, and God the Holy Spirit would take these things to uh, enable us to grow more and more. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.